You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back, listeners. It's been nearly four months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with no quick fixes in sight. Recently, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security hosted an in-person event featuring special commentary by John Arith, Senior Policy Director for the Center of Arms Control and Proliferation. This episode features his remarks on the ongoing situation and how an early end to the violence in Ukraine may be elusive. As always, thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy. So I'm back. I hope you're enjoying your breakfast and catching up with colleagues and friends. For those of us who care deeply about the rule of law and national security, and I think that covers everyone in this room, the last several weeks with the war, Russian war in Ukraine, has been very sobering, very challenging, tragic in so many ways, and has created so many uh, critical tests for the ability of the rules-based system to prevail and for the good guys to come out on top. We have with us today uh, uh, an expert who is going to share, not from a lawyer's point of view, but from a policy expert's point of view, what's been going on vis-a-vis Russia, Ukraine, but also I think he's going to have some prognostications about at least the the near-term future. John Arath is a senior policy director at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He oversees their policy team and guides work on issues that include Iran, Russia, North Korea, China, U.S. domestic nuclear policy, and others. He had 30 years of government service, much of it in arms control and nonproliferation in the State Department. Most recently, he completed a two-year assignment on the National Security Council, where he was responsible for European issues. He focused there on cooperation with NATO and the European Union, as well as heading the White House efforts to improve stability in the Balkans. John began his diplomatic career in the 90s working on what was then Yugoslavia. He was later seconded to the OSCE in Kosovo and the office of the High Representative in Sarajevo. He later covered the Balkans at the U.S. mission to NATO and for the office of the Secretary of Defense. In Washington, John also focused on arms control and nonproliferation, having worked on the delegation for the adoption of the conventional forces in Europe, the CFE Treaty, and he led the U.S. delegation to the Wassenaar Arrangement General Working Group. He's also held diplomatic positions in India and Brazil, and until 2018, the Political Military Affairs Office at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara. A well-traveled man for still being so youthful. John is a graduate of Georgetown University and had a master's degree from, in national security strategy from the National War College here in Washington. He's a widely respected author, and he's also written three plays, so we might ask him about his, uh, his other career. John, welcome to the Standing Committee. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Banks. It's a real pleasure to be here with all of you this morning, and particularly to be here in person. This is the first one of these I've done for uh, for quite some time, and oh, I remembered to wear pants. That's good. <laughs> <clears throat> J- just had to check because uh, I've been doing a lot via Zoom. Mr. Banks asked me to uh, speak to you today on the subject of an article that I wrote that appeared on uh, the Just Security 
website. So uh, I'm sure you will all be appreciative that I'm not going to just read the article or summarize it, but I want to talk about uh, what went into writing it, uh, some of the, the considerations, more recent developments, uh, and in particular what uh, I see happening in the, the near and medium term future. So the, the article was called, In Ukraine There Are No Quick Fixes. And I argued that not only is the conflict not going to end in the next few weeks, but that ending it too soon might do more harm than good. Now, I got this idea via a series of conversations I had in Geneva back in March, where I actually made a trip for the first time in two years. It was so weird to be in another country, and, and particularly to speak another language. What I discovered in Europe is that there is a much stronger sense of urgency. Uh, there's a strong sense of that we need to do something about the humanitarian catastrophe. And this, this is perfectly understandable because it, it is truly terrible and because European countries are seeing thousands of refugees coming in their doors every day. And so there, there's a, a sense that they need to do something about this. And so I was being continually asked, how do we get this over? How does it end? And from there, the, the questions were, well, should, should we make Ukraine neutral? They have to give up NATO membership, right? We'll just give them that, and that'll fix it. How do we do this quickly? And I started thinking, well, if we do it quickly, that might do more harm than good. A quick end to the conflict would almost uh, certainly have to be in the nature of a ceasefire that would freeze things in place. So in other words, more or less what happened in 2014 where the situation on the ground was, was frozen. We call it a frozen conflict. There was nothing all that frozen about it. There was every day since 2014 shooting across the line of control. There were, there were minor territorial gains and losses on both sides. There were hundreds of people who died on both the Russian and Ukrainian sides. But it still qualified as peace, so we took it. So would we go back to that kind of situation would we just set ourselves up for another war in seven or eight years? That's what I mean by saying it might do more harm than good. The 2014 conflict led Vladimir Putin to believe that he could get away with doing this again. He was, he was in effect, rewarded for his aggression. Freezing the conflict too soon would do that. So that would be a very negative consequence. What, what happened in 2014 was there were some sanctions, there were some travel restrictions placed, uh, there were some, some relatively minor efforts. It, it was a slap in the wrist. Putin got the message from this that nobody cared that much what happened to Ukraine. This is very much consistent with his mindset that Ukraine is not a real country, that uh, Ukrainians are just uh, uh, removed Russians. Russians refer to them as, as little Russians, which, which is derogatory and, and offensive to Ukrainians. Uh, so uh, don't go out of here saying that I used that term. But he, he felt he could get away with it, and, and no doubt he felt he could do that again this year, that nobody would care enough to really push back the sanctions that hit. Well, let's face it, the sanctions are not that severe, but the sanctions that hit were quite a surprise because they, they were more effective than what happened. Most of the, the negative reactions to the sanctions, the, the, uh, the economic damage, has not been caused by the sanctions themselves, but by a lack of confidence in the markets over there. 
that, that the sanctions are having some bite and that they're going to get worse. So one negative effect of freezing the conflict now would be that it would, in effect, reward aggression. The other would be it would set a precedent that, again, he got away with it and that, that uh, this could be repeated perhaps at a time when the Russian military was not so incompetent, perhaps at a time that the Ukrainian people were not so unified. And maybe, maybe next time it would work and he would get what he really wanted, which is control of more slices of Ukraine and a compliant Ukrainian government that would be pro-Russian and would keep away from a course of European integration. What I, what I came up with this is the, the idea that the, the determinant should be not when do we want the conflict to end, but when Ukrainians want the conflict to end. It's got to be their choice. It doesn't do any good to say, stop fighting now. You've done a good job so far, but you're going to, to give up and agree to a long-term occupation of your territory. It is equally unacceptable to say, Ukraine, you have to keep fighting to the last drop of your blood. So there needs to be some kind of middle course there. And the guiding principle of that middle course must be, what is the will of the Ukrainians? And we need to back them up for however long they decide to fight and back them up when they decide it is time to make peace. That's the key interest. And Ukraine is coming up on a point when it will have to make a big decision as to what kind of war it wants to have. They need to set what their war aims are, what their, their strategic goals are. And what I mean by this is, is the, the decision is basically between long and short. They can, they can uh, try to wage a shorter war in which they would inflict maximum casualties on Russia, tire out the Russians, and then go to a relatively early, and I'm saying three to six months maybe at the best, uh, peace deal with the Russians where things would go back more or less to where they were before the Russian invasion in February, that this would allow the Ukrainians to, to declare victory, clear failure for the Russians, and we get to an earlier situation of relative peace. Or they can decide to go long. This is a huge gamble. They could decide, we're going to fight this out. We will never have a better chance to rid our territory of Russian occupation. But to do that, they are going to have to be willing to invest a tremendous amount of, of blood and take high casualties in order to do that to the Russians, to get to the point where there is a collapse in the Russian army, where it has to pull out altogether, perhaps with a, a change in the Russian regime. But in doing so, they run a huge risk that it will be Ukraine that collapses first. Wars are unpredictable things. Nobody knows what is going to happen. So this, this is the decision. I, I, I suspect they're not going to want to make that decision flat out one or the other, and they will, they will hedge the bets a little bit and sort of uh, tend towards the, the shorter option. But again, whatever Ukraine decides is what we should be backing up in the United States and NATO and in the West. What Ukraine decides is in its interest. So that, that's the Ukrainian interest side of things. I'm going to talk now a little bit about what is in the US interest here. Obviously, the humanitarian situation is a very important one. The other big interest is not rewarding aggression, as I said. But we have another one, and it's not going to come as a surprise to anybody who's read my business card. 
and that is that there should be no use of nuclear weapons. Any use of nuclear weapons, whatever the scale, is going to be catastrophic. It's going to be really bad for the people who are in the area where a weapon is used, uh, but also for the world in general. We have had no use of nuclear weapons since 1945. There's a good reason for that. They have very limited military utility. Their primary purpose is as a deterrent, and a deterrent only. And the use of a weapon makes nuclear weapons in general more usable, which will lead more countries to want to acquire them. We've already seen a very negative development in this regard with the, the continual nuclear threats that are coming out of Moscow. It, it's usually one of, one of his uh, lapdogs, not Putin himself, uh, who will say, if the West continues to aid Ukraine, they will suffer unimaginable consequences and leave it very clear that what they mean is nuclear weapons. So what we're seeing now is, is a development of the idea of the threat of the use of nuclear weapons as a tool of statecraft. That's never been done before at least not this directly. And by adding this as a use for nuclear weapons, as a, as a cover for military aggression, what Putin is doing is creating another incentive for countries such as Iran and North Korea to acquire nuclear weapons, and, and North Korea has them already, not give up their nuclear weapons, and to use this when, to get what they want. So if Iran has a territorial dispute with one of its neighbors, it can be threatening to nuke these guys if you don't happen to move the border posts 200 meters to the south or whatever it would be. So it's a very serious set of consequences that come out of the, this threat of nuclear weapons. Now, I, I want to be very clear. I do not think there is a high possibility that a nuclear weapon would be used in Ukraine just because the consequences would be so extreme. Uh, there's a great deal of discussion about... Uh, would the Russians use a tactical weapon in a battlefield situation? I don't think they would. I'm, I'm not a military person. I'm, I'm a uh, diplomat. The diplomatic consequences would be extreme to the use of any nuclear weapon, first of all. Second, if it's a piece of territory you want to occupy, why irradiate it and destroy everything that's on it? So there are good reasons to think that, that uh, there would not be a likely use of nuclear weapons. But that said, the chance that a weapon would be used is greater now than it has ever been, perhaps since the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps since 1945. And that's a, a situation that we have to take very seriously. So what do we do about that? Well, we should be getting the word out. And I, I think to some extent, the government and the State Department are doing this already that the consequences for any use of a nuclear weapon would be very bad. The sanctions that have happened thus far would be a drop in the bucket compared to what will happen, that there will be total international isolation of Russia. We should be getting word out to the fence sitters, the, the countries that have been reluctant to condemn Russian aggression thus far, China, India, Brazil, the, the big countries and, and the countries to the south, to say, no, don't use nuclear weapons, because a use of a nuclear weapon would affect the whole world. It's something that, that nobody can remain neutral about. I want to uh, just uh, raise one other issue before I, I open the floor to questions. And that is, it is, it is very disturbing recently that 
the Russians have been choosing, and, and I use that word intentionally, they have chosen to explain their military failures by attributing them to the assistance that is coming into Ukraine from outside. I want to be very clear that the reason Russia is failing and the reason Ukraine is doing so well is 90% the will of the Ukrainian people to resist. That is the key factor. If by pouring in security assistance we could keep up, we could keep propping up a government that otherwise couldn't do it, there would still be a South Vietnam. Obviously that's not the case. It is the fact that Ukraine is resisting and doing so in an absolutely heroic fashion that is what is contributing to the failure of the Russian troops. We do ourselves a huge disservice when I pick up the New York Times and I read $200 billion in, in US aid making a difference in Ukraine. It may be helping a little bit, but it's not going to help if the Ukrainians themselves are not going to want to resist. Uh, I make this point because Putin does not want to admit that he's getting beaten by a bunch of little Russians. Instead, by explaining it as, well, it's the, those godless foreigners who are, who are doing this to us, he's putting himself in a corner. Because then, if, if that's why Russia is losing, he has to do something about that. And he can do things like threaten not to sell gas to Europe, but then he's, he's cutting off his own source of revenue. Almost as importantly, the revenue of, of his uh, closest associates who are making billions from these energy sales. But one of the only tools he has then to get leverage on the US and the West is this threat of, of the use of nuclear weapons. And if he keeps making the threat, at some point he has to demonstrate, or he could decide he has to demonstrate, that he has, is willing to follow through on it. And that really is very dangerous. So this is all a very long way of saying that the US needs to maintain its nuclear deterrence. Uh, a strange thing to hear, perhaps, from a guy with arms control in his title. But it, it is true. Nuclear weapons are a deterrent to other nuclear weapons. In the, the conventional war that's going on on the Ukrainian battlefield, they're pretty much useless. But in the, the strategic area, they have a value uh, for deterrence. But this is not to say that we need to accept the argument that because nuclear weapons deter, we need to have more of them to deter more. Deterrence is more of a, of a yes or no kind of proposition. Either you're deterred or you're not. You're not more deterred if there are 100 new weapons. So we need to be very careful about falling into that uh, logical trap of thinking that uh, we have deterrence, so we need to have more of it and more weapons, especially because, as we have seen from the performance of the Russian army on the battlefield, which is abysmal, we do have a significant conventional advantage. So now, and we get back to the thing where I have arms control in my title, this is all an argument for why as we get to the post-conflict, when, when this simmers down eventually, long or short, whatever the Ukrainians decide, that's when we need to start the arms control process again. If we learn nothing else from this, what we should learn is that we don't want to live with the threats of nuclear weapons. The world is safer with fewer nuclear weapons than with more. Yes, we, we still need to have some for deterrence, but in the Cold War, we needed 30,000. Now we find we have adequate deterrence with 5,000. At some point, maybe that number can, can come down. 
especially in a situation where we have such a significant advantage in the conventional military sense. So I just wanted to leave you with that thought because arms control is what uh, provides my paycheck, and so I'm going to make the case for it. But any questions now? Please. Well, first of all, thank you so much for coming and speaking, and your piece is very thoughtful. But your, your remarks raise a number of sort of interesting questions I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, first, it's great to see a National War College graduate doing so well. It's <laughs> great to see. The first issue is, um, in the short-term and long-term strategy of the Ukrainians, what do you see as the appropriate role of the United States in support of the struggle? At this point, as you know from your war college days, there's the concept of co-belligerency. And we've been very careful not to be, under international law, identified as a co-belligerent. But as you said, we appear to be willing to fight to the last Ukrainian for the issue, as opposed to doing something that would have us more of a the game, uh, sort of more of a skin in the game. Second issue is, um, given your role in nonproliferation, is not the sort of the lesson of Pax Americana now that if you have nuclear weapons, you are safe from intervention, i.e., Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Ukraine, and did not. We guarantee Ukraine if they gave up their nuclear weapons that we have some sort of guarantees of their sovereignty. And how do you feel as a <clears throat> diplomat what rule we're really expanding and giving to the world? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on those two sort of concepts. Well, in, easy questions. In, yes. in, in good diplomatic fashion, I'll, I'll do the, the last question first, because <laughs> by the time I answer that, everybody will have forgotten the first one. <laughs> That, that's one of the important things that has to come out of, of this conflict. If we come out with a, a Russian success and the idea that, that aggression is rewarded and the idea that Russia was able to carry out its designs under the umbrella of its nuclear threats, that's very bad. I'm, I'm using the technical term here, very bad. Uh, but I, I don't know of, of anything better. The important thing was not that we guaranteed Ukrainian security, but that Russia did in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, uh, where Russia specifically said, in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons, it, it, they were never Ukraine's nuclear weapons. They were Soviet nuclear weapons located on Ukrainian territory. But in return for Ukraine returning these, these things to Russia, which was absolutely the right thing to do because they're dangerous and expensive. and Ukraine did not have the command codes to actually use them at any time. But in return for Ukraine giving, giving these things back, Russia guaranteed not just that it would not use or threaten to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine, but it guaranteed Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, which, you know, when I checked my map, included Crimea. So they threw that one away in 2004. So yes, there is a, a huge danger that countries will learn the wrong lesson from this. If what happens instead is that Russia, despite its nuclear threats, fails completely in what it is doing, then another set of lessons are possible. If it turns out that uh, the nuclear program that North Korea has is too expensive to maintain and there is an economic collapse there, that is another lesson that, that can be learned. 
but these are difficult times for those of us in the nonproliferation field. And see, now I forgot your first question. No. <laughs> first question was, was on the strategy and the idea of co-belligerency. And I think the uh, government has done a good job of walking that line and staying on the right side of it. Co-belligerency would reinforce this paranoia of Putin's that uh, the world is against him, that this is all just a secret US plot to get him. Uh, and so we, we don't need to go there. But at the same time, we're doing what is possible to, uh, to reinforce Ukraine and to uh, enable its military success. I, I have the luxury now that I'm not in government anymore, so I can, I can say less than positive things about the government. I, I think that the administration was a little slow on the uptake, that there was a sense that overcautiousness, perhaps, at first. But now things are flowing, and it's going to be important for the people who are uh, military experts to go in there and figure out exactly what will be useful. Things uh, in, in the, the early days of the conflict, there was this idea of sending fighter aircraft, which was, are there any pilots in the room? OK, good. It was, it was useless, because you know, fighter aircraft are, are, are wonderful things. But you can't, you can't just plug them in and fly them overnight. They, they need years of training, uh, especially with, with advanced modern aircraft. It requires years of training. They're tremendously expensive. And the number that they were talking about, which was six or something like that, is not very significant when Russia's flying 300. Admittedly, junkier, lower tech aircraft, but there's still an awful lot of them up there. Uh, so that would be a waste of millions of dollars that could be better spent on, say, food or medicine or relatively low-tech things like Javelin missiles that are producing some positive effect. At present, we have, we have stayed on, in my opinion anyway, the, the right side of that belligerency line. And I don't see that there's a reason to cross it. Yes, please. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, and since you're a launch control expert, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your, your thoughts on everybody's been praising all the countries that have all Soviet equipment that are giving it to Ukraine. And at the, at the same time, they're going to get brand new US equipment or at least NATO equipment. This changes dramatically the, the capabilities of those countries from the old technology that they're giving out to Ukraine and the new technology they're going to get. How does that uh, work out in terms of the balance that the Russians may have considered before the war started, and now seeing all these former Soviet satellites that now have brand new weapons. And I wanted to talk about, if you could elaborate a little bit on your point regarding the decisions for the Ukrainians. I know that's the ideal, but let's say that if the US next year changes its position because of the political realities in, in the US Congress, and the US stopped supporting militarily, not morally, but militarily at the level that we've been doing. Can NATO or the European countries continue that fight? I mean, I mean, in terms of supplying those weapons. Because if not, then it's really not to the Ukrainians. I value the will issue, but a lot of will without the weapon would not defeat the Russians. So those are the, again, simple questions that I know. But uh, some of the issues that I, I thought that you could elaborate a little bit. It's something that's an unforeseen consequence for the Russians. 
that some of the Central European countries are finally moving to more modern NATO standard systems. Uh, th this is a question of politics for a lot of them, uh, where they hung on to the Warsaw Pact branded things because it was cheaper. Now they're realizing that Russia is aggressive, that it is uh, not following a rules-based international order, and so the, the parliaments are loosening the purse strings a little bit. So that, that's really what, what is going on. It is also going to have the, the uh, deterrent effect, I would hope, on Russia that these will be much tougher nuts to crack. Interestingly, the country that, that saw this first was Poland. And the, the Poles, uh, despite not having the strongest economy, although they're, they're not doing too badly, uh, had contracted for several major purchases in the last four years, including joint strike fighters, tanks, artillery, some of the things that are proving significant in the, the uh, actual war. Good to the Polish government for looking forward. Now I forgot the second part of your question. Regarding the, the politics of it here in terms of supporting ah, yes. that I, I've, I've been pessimistic all morning. So I, I've been painting a pessimistic view all morning. I'm going to be a little bit optimistic on this and, and say that, that both members of Congress of both parties understand right now that it's good politics to support the people of Ukraine. And so I, I don't see that changing. What, what I would see is if uh, the U.S. economy gets worse, that there would be increased push to not spend money overseas when there's inflation and other big problems at home. So that, that's how I would see things, things potentially changing. But I, I think it will still be good politics to support Ukraine even after the midterm elections. Please. I apologize as I fall through this, but you emphasized in your remarks the uh, importance of our current conventional uh, capabilities and the deterrent effect in the past, as well as the nuclear deterrent I'm going to try to be optimistic again and, and, and say that, that a new national military strategy is in preparation and should come out relatively soon to answer those questions. My understanding from my friends who are still in the Pentagon is that the war in Ukraine has kind of slowed the whole process down and prompted some uh, reevaluation. And remember also that there is a modernization of the nuclear force that is underway uh, that has drawn support from both parties. And despite being uh, hugely expensive and probably wasting more money than it, it should, it is something that, that there has been general consensus in Washington is, is overdue. I, I think there, there's some inertia behind nuclear modernization. There are going to be people on one hand who say the, the threats of use of nuclear weapons coming from Russia mean we have to beef up the nuclear force. There are going to be people on the other hand who say we don't need any nuclear force. We need to just start slicing it away and saving money. And as with most things, the, the best course is probably somewhere in the middle. I would have a much better job than I do now if I knew exactly what that was. Uh, same thing on the conventional side. 
I, I think this is an opportunity to look at what at how a modern war is actually being fought and learn some lessons there as to what the, the structure and capabilities of conventional forces will be needed in the future. I've, I've seen a number of articles saying, is, is the tank obsolete? And I, I, I leave it to the, the army people in the room to, to answer that particular question. But it, that's the sort of thing that should be getting asked. How many tanks do we really need in the future when every infantryman can carry a, an anti-tank device that's capable of, of defeating that? But I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I have the answers. I'm a policy guy, not a, a hardware guy. I, I think you had, you had a question? Quick point. I had two, but I'll just have one. Have you considered the thought that Putin may not uh, use nuclear weapon in Ukraine? But we've had, for, I think, 25 years now, nobody testing a nuclear weapon. The possibility that uh, as, a, as, a, as he gets back against the wall, he might take that option, or is that, would that be off the table? If he tests on his own territory, it's kind of like warning, hey, I've stood up these things. And, uh, is that possible? I don't want to be trying to say that I know what is in Putin's mind. I, I know what I would advise him if, if I were hired by the Kremlin, which I, I would not take the job. But if, if, if I had that job, uh, I would be telling him not to do that because everybody knows Russia has nuclear weapons. Everybody knows they work because they've been tested over many years. Probably like all the rest of the weapons, they don't all work and they're going to be some duds and They've got uh, over 5,000 strategic weapons and two or 3,000 non-strategic weapons in, in storage. So some of them work enough to make really serious problems. The, the idea of, of testing is somewhat outdated. We can simulate tests with a high degree of accuracy. I, I don't pretend to know the science, but I, I know what I've been told by the people who do. Uh, so there's, there's no reason on our side to test. And I imagine the Russians have some clever guys on the science side as well who could say we know that they test for political reasons, as, as you mentioned. I'm not quite sure what that gets. I would think, you know, I'm being highly speculative, so please don't quote me on this and say the Center for Arms Control thinks the Russians are going to set off a, a nuke. If, if they would do something, it would be more like an accident done on purpose kind of thing. Oops, oh, we don't know what's going to happen with these things. You better watch out. But I, I, I still think that's highly, highly unlikely. So don't go home and scare your families and say, oh, this expert on nuclear weapons says there's going to be an explosion. John Arith, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security is a, is a community. It's a community here in Washington and the greater area that is growing and has great influence. And welcome to the community. With this coin, you're now part of the Standing Committee on Law and National Hey, listeners. The 2021-2022 edition of the U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook is now available through the committee website. This is our eighth edition. It has been praised by General Hayden as the most authoritative, comprehensive, and up-to-date compendium of U.S. intelligence law ever, and by others in intelligence as particularly worthy of space on every national security practitioner's desk, whether in government, private practice, or law school. Check it out. It's a must-have. And added bonus, it also cross-references topics covered by national security law today. Find it in the description to this episode and at www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity.
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.